Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the mysterious unsolved murder of JFK mistress and Washington, D.C. socialite, Mary Pinchot Meyer. I just sort of sat up and sort of pulled myself together and, and got oriented. And then immediately this thought came through of understanding why my father had called Ben Bradley right after the murder. My father knew about the murder. He knew what was going on. The CIA was controlling the whole operation. And it was clear to me that he had a role, an assignment in this assassination. And that was it. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you suspect you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, you need to call. Paranormal Contractors, 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Now, just a reminder, later in this episode, a return visit from Christian D. Cadieux from Paranormal Contractors. Also this episode, I'm presenting another in an ongoing series of episodes pertaining to the JFK assassination as the 55th anniversary approaches. Here on Conspiracy Unlimited, we've been looking at the public execution of the 35th president from various angles. Earlier this week, I interviewed author-researcher Ed Haslam about his book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, which documented the murder of a renowned cancer doctor and how she was connected to David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald and the murder of JFK. And I also spoke with the granddaughter of Orville Nix, who filmed the assassination on November 22nd, 1963. The Nix film has been overshadowed by the Zapruder film, but it's very important because it shows the assassination from the opposite angle, facing the grassy knoll. Today, an interview with Peter Janney, author of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. 
Who really murdered Mary Pinchot Meyer in the fall of 1964? Why was there a mad rush by CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton to locate and confiscate her diary? Had Meyer finally put together the intricate pieces of bewildering conspiratorial mosaic of information that revealed a plan to assassinate her ally and lover, President Kennedy? And was it mere coincidence that Mary Meyer was killed less than three weeks after the release of the Warren Commission report? Drawing on years of painstaking research and interviews, much of it revealed here for the first time, author Peter Janney traces the most important events and influences in the life of Mary Pinchot Meyer, including her exploration of psychedelic drugs as a protege of Timothy Leary and her support of her secret lover, the President of the United States, as he turned away from the Cold War toward the pursuit of world peace. The 50th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination and Mary Myers has come and gone, but their deaths remain a haunting harbinger of America's fall from grace. Peter Janney grew up in Washington, D.C. during the 1950s and 1960s. His father was a high-ranking CIA official and a close friend of Richard Helms, James Angleton, and Mary Myers' husband, Cord Meyer. A graduate of Princeton, Peter is a clinical psychologist who lives by the sea in Beverly, Massachusetts. Peter Janney, how are you? Great to be with you and your listeners this evening, Richard. Our pleasure. Uh, Peter, give us a thumbnail sketch of this uh, late Washington socialite, Mary Pinchot Meyer. Who was she? Well, this was a woman uh, of my parents' generation, you know, the, the sort of post-World War II generation, most of the who had been born in the late, you know, early 1920s, a little bit before, a little bit after. And uh, Mary Pinchot, as, you know, a young maiden, was arguably one of the most beautiful women of an entire generation. And she was raised in a very aristocratic, progressive New York family. Uh, her mother was a well-known jur- journalist, Ruth Pinchot. Her father, uh, Amos Pinchot, was one of the co-founders of the American Civil Liberties Union. They had a certain amount of money. Uh, her her uncle was Gifford Pinchot, a two-time governor of, of Pennsylvania. And... During her upbringing, Richard, you know, this was a family that really put up a lot of premium on their children becoming independent, uh, both emotionally and intellectually, and they were encouraged to, in a sense, cultivate a state of independence. And you had a personal so, relationship to the family. Her her son uh, was her, her son your best was, friend. Was my, her son was my best friend. He was accidentally killed when we were both nine years old in a car accident, uh, which precipitated a huge grief reaction for me in my life. But uh, my mother had gone to college uh, with Mary Pinchot. They were in the same class at Vassar College, the class of 1942. And our fathers both worked uh, at the CIA. Both were very high officials, both hired by Alan Dulles right after the inception of the CIA in 1947. So I was, you know, kind of known uh, as a C- CIA brat. There were, there were a number of us who our families socialized together. Uh, but Mary was something very, very different. She was unlike any other adult I knew 
as a child. Right. She was very present uh, when she talked with you or you talked with her. You really felt like she was actually listening uh, and just not trying to brush you off in some way. Very contactful individual. Right. A painter, a poet, um, and also her brother-in-law was, was Ben Bradley of the, of the Washington Post. That's right. He wasn't at the Post, you know, at that time, but he was, you know, uh, head of Newsweek. Um, and he was actually the Washington bureau chief of Newsweek. Right. Uh, soon he would be recruited by uh, the Washington Post in, in 1965. Right. And good friends with uh, James Jesus Angleton's uh, wife. Uh, I mean, the connections to the CIA, ex-husband was Cordmeyer, a CIA Unusual that Jack Kennedy, obviously, we know of his penchant for extramarital affairs. I mean, it was once quoted as, uh, you know, arriving at a party and he said, you know, where are the broads? Well, Mary Pinchot Meyer was not, you know, just another one of his broads, quote, end quote. Uh, there was no, a... She, she, this, this relationship uh, with Mary actually uh, was engendered in 1936 JFK came back to Choate School after he had graduated. He was he was a freshman at Princeton that year, but he had spent a lot of he was sick a lot that year. And I think he was trying to sort of get back into the social game. So he went back to his high school or prep school winter festivities weekend in the winter of 1936. And Mary was the date of William Atwood, who was two years behind JFK, and, and for your listeners, uh, Bill Atwood would eventually become uh, JFK's ambassador to Guinea when, after he was president. Um, he also orchestrated a very secret rapprochement with Fidel Castro in the fall of 1963. But that's when, in, in, in the winter of 1936, was when JFK first laid eyes on Mary, and he was mesmerized by her. He couldn't restrain himself from keep st- cutting in on Bill Atwood on the dance floor. And Bill Atwood happened to be, you know, a little bit sick that evening, so he had to run upstairs every often and gargle with Listerine because he had a really bad sore throat. And, of course, whenever he went upstairs... JFK moved right in. Um, so there was this sort of, it wasn't a feud, but, you know, there was a certain amount of competition that, that, that went on at that time. But nothing romantic came out of that 1936 encounter. Mary, what, already Mary was a very mature young woman, and she, she saw JFK for what he was, a, a young playboy type, and it didn't interest her. However, they did keep in touch. They did cross paths during college. Uh, and it really wasn't until uh, the late 1950s, after Mary had separated and divorced from Cord Meyer, that the two of them, uh, you know, started running into each other more frequently. And it was in the fall of 1960 that, you know, while he was campaigning for the presidency, that their actual affair Began. Let me just remind listeners, Peter Janney is with us, the author of Mary's Mosaic, The CIA Conspiracy to Murder, John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and Their Vision for World Peace. This is the third edition. 
And uh, we should also point out, forward by uh, Dick Russell, who did some, um, you know, very early on in the game, was investigating the JFK assassination for the Village Voice. Um, not a lot of time here. We, we could take three hours, obviously, and, and discuss how their relationship unfolded and so forth. But um, let's let's move ahead to October 12th, 1964, about three weeks after the release of the, uh, the Warren Report uh, into the assassination of, of JFK. Uh, Mary's body is found in a in a park. Uh, she had been shot uh, twice, and uh, just sort of pick up the uh, the timeline from there, if you could, Peter. We're we're heading into a break in about three minutes, and uh, we'll start okay. it now. Well, your listeners should know that Mary had a routine as a as a painter. She would go to her studio, what was in the back of the Bradley House in Georgetown. She would paint from about eight thirty to noon. Uh, and then she would customarily walk down into Georgetown and walk out what's known as the Chesapeake and Ohio towpath. And she would walk out the towpath about a mile and a half to a place called Fletcher's Boathouse and then turn around and walk back. And this was her routine. And so part of my research, I learned that she was under surveillance after the Warren Commission uh, came out. And, of course... On a certain day, uh, the order came down to take her out. And we should probably wait now until after the break. We'll go in and tell your audience exactly why and how this came about. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, and and no assassination, uh, and let's call this an assassination, uh, is complete without a patsy. And of course, they had one r- ready to go, and that was a uh, a, a poor African American uh, by the name of Crump. Ray Crump Jr. Ray correct. Crump Jr. And as is often the case <laughs> with these, you know, there's a pattern here. Uh, it's like when Prouty was in New Zealand and he gets the newspaper and was reading about Oswald's, you know, being arrested before they'd even apprehended him in the, in the theater. Same sort of thing with Crump. It was all, you know, they, they had this guy pegged. They had every, they knew everything about him. Uh, and they were ready to basically close the case. Is that not true? Yes. The, the parallels in terms of the actual structure, uh, of how the JFK assassination was structured and how this assassination was structured are very similar. This is very personal, uh, this account, because, uh, uh, Peter, you knew, uh, the Meyer family. Uh, your best friend was Mary's uh, son. He was killed tragically in 1956. Uh, and, um, uh, as we will, f- will find out, uh, it, it hits even closer to home. Uh, your father was uh, in the CIA, Wister, uh, Wister Janney, and we'll uh, we'll talk about how he fits into this uh, story as well. Uh, so we were talking about the timeline of uh, of uh, Mary's murder, and she's discovered in this uh, in this park. It was actually her brother-in-law Ben Bradley that identified her body in the morgue. Correct? That's correct. But that only took place after Ben Bradley 
got a very cryptic call from none other than my father uh, working at the CIA that day. And he called Ben up approximately uh, about uh, an hour or so after the murder had taken place. Ray Crump had already been apprehended and was arrested. They were waiting to take him downtown uh, to the Metropolitan Police Department. And so shortly after lunch, as Bradley tells it in his memoir, he got a call from his friend, Wister Janney, and the call went pretty much like this. Wister said to Ben, Ben, are you listening to the radio? And Ben said, Wister, why would I be listening to the radio? I'm at work. He said, well, there's, there's been a shooting down on the canal, and, and by the, the description of it, uh, it sounds like it could be Mary. Do, do you know where Mary is? And, of course, that sets off a, a, a chain reaction, uh, you know, in Bradley, who is very... Uh, you know, stunned by what he's being told. In any case, uh, he leaves work, and it isn't for several hours later uh, where the police show up at Bradley's house, having been to every other Meyer residence in the immediate area, and, and said to him, you know, Mr. Bradley, I think we may have your sister-in-law down at the morgue. Would you please come down and, and identify the body, at which point he did. But the real clincher here, Richard, is why is my father calling up Ben Bradley to tell him about this? And after years of struggling with this, this was part of the CIA controlling the entire scenario. In other words, they waited until Crump was arrested. They're trying. Mary, Mary. They, the police had no. Uh, understanding of who the body was. There was no identification on Mary. Um, the only thing that they eventually saw was that inside of the gloves she was wearing, there was a name tag that said Meyer on it. And that was the only clue that eventually led that, led the police to go to her house and find that no one was there. And by uh, elimination, uh, it, it became apparent that the, the body in the morgue was that was that of Mary Meyer, and, and Mary Meyer's um, affair with with President Kennedy uh, was not public knowledge until was it the National Enquirer that actually Correct. broke the story in 1976? But obviously, others knew and were well aware. I'm, I'm assuming the Secret Service there, and, and the, the CIA. There was a close group of Mary's friends that knew. I would say less than five. Uh, ben Bradley maintains that he didn't know about the affair. You, you know, I, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, and, of course, her sister maintains that uh, she didn't know about the affair, which I think is probably true. Mary was a very private person, and I think she made it clear to JFK that, look, if they were going to do this, he needed to play ball with her and basically you know, try and be as secretive about this as possible. So there, there's this little dance that JFK does when he gets together with Ben Bradley and his wife, who is Mary's sister. And, of course, he pretends to be very doting on Mary's sister, thinking that, you know, she is his ideal woman. But it, it's just it's just for show. You know, secretly, 
Mary, JFK is really uh, head over heels in love with Mary. He, he told his dear friend, Charlie Bartlett, who was the uh, Washington editor of the Chattanooga Times newspaper, um, who JFK invited, confided to a lot, that he, he was in love with Mary. Uh, he told Kenny O'Donnell, his special assistant, his closest assistant in the White House, that after he left the presidency, he was going to divorce Jackie so that he could be with Mary. This was what I call, as a psychologist, a relationship of redemption. I think JFK saw in Mary, for the first time, a woman who he could really trust and respect and who was not going to play games with him, nor was she going to tolerate any kind of games from him. So all through the book, your readers will see that there are little vignettes, you know, of stories that I, I have tried to footnote over the years that, that really show that Mary was saying, look, you know, if you want to, if you want to hang with me, you better get your stuff together because I'm not going to put up with this crap. You know, I mean, I know what these, this running around womanizing of yours is all about. It's all he knew. It's all he knew. He grew up in a house where his father did the same thing. Not to excuse it, but that's the context. Yes, but, but what this is really psychologically a reflection of is a flight from real intimacy. And JFK had tremendous difficulty with women and being able to be emotionally honest and intimate with them. I think, you know, he lost one of his best friends when his sister, uh, Kat died. And, uh, you know, she was killed in an airplane crash, I think in the late 1940s, uh, Kit, uh, as she was called. And I think it devastated JFK that the closest relationship he had ever had with any kind of woman, his sister, was now, was now lost. Just jumping ahead here quickly and, and, um, we we need more time, obviously, but the the connection with uh, Timothy Leary and and Mary Pinchot Meyer. Uh, the story goes that that um, apocryphal or not, you tell me. She introduced LSD to the president. Well, she uh, introduced the hallucinogen psilocybin, which is you know like LSD. It's a little bit different, but you know the same idea. You know, you know, Mary as an artist really was. Um, um, the cutting edge, so to speak. I mean, she was very intrigued by uh, hallucinogens. She had used them herself. She found them profoundly helpful when used responsibly. Uh, She was out on the West Coast hanging with a crowd out there that had to do a lot of Hollywood people were having LSD sessions with several... uh, psychiatrists out there who were doing this kind of thing. So this was really, you know, kind of the avant-garde artistic uh, trajectory that that Mary was a part of. And, And so, you know, when she realizes what the power of these substances are, she she feels that they can be an immense tool uh, for expanding the consciousness of political leaders to show them that, you know, there is something more important 
uh, than imperialism and war and <laughs> conquering the world. And, and so she goes to Tim Leary actually in the fall of 1962 because she wants to learn how to guide someone through a hallucinogenic session. And so Tim Leary helps her out. He's very attracted to her. They, you know, but she doesn't tell him any of the real details of what she's up to in Washington. She won't tell him that she's having an affair with the prince, with the president. She won't tell him that she's organized several other women, one of whom I believe was Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, uh, who are interested uh, in giving some of the more uh, important leaders in Washington the opportunity to experience uh, what this is all about. It reminds me, flash ahead to the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane, I think she was attending a, uh, a Nixon's daughter's wedding, and she tried to slip some acid into Nixon's coffee, if memory serves. But was President Kennedy actually, I don't know how to use the vernacular, tripping out in the White House? Well... As far as I can make out, and I, you know, there's no unequivocal proof for this, but there are, as, as you, your potential readers will find out, and I don't want to, you know, wreck it for them, um, there are several uh, strands in my book that pretty much show that in May of 1963, Mary and JFK uh, did a mild hallucinogenic uh, ex- experience together with psilocybin in Georgetown at the house of Joe Alsop, the, the journalist. And so you fast forward several weeks into June, June 10th, 1963, where JFK gives this historic American University commencement address on world peace. Right. Some say that and, may have been the nail in his coffin, that speech. That, that's exactly right. I mean, and it's very clear at that point coming out of the Cuban Missile Crisis that previous fall in October of 1962, where arguably it was the most dangerous moment in all of human history. You know, JFK comes out of that, as does Nikita Khrushchev, realizing that this is insane, that they can never allow this kind of thing to happen again, that they damn near destroyed the planet. I mean, it Literally, Richard, you and I, if there had been a thermonuclear war back in the fall of 1962, you and I would not be sitting here talking today. Uh, it would have just been devastating in, in terms of life as we know it on planet Earth. Yeah, I don't so, think people appreciate, young people in particular, how close uh, we were. I, I've talked to people uh, out on the West Coast uh, who, who lived through this and, 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 and were telling me how at one point they're listening to the radio, they would, they'd stop the car, pulled over, and were literally hugging each other and saying goodbye to each other. That's how yes. close we were. Yes. And, and even, you know, we didn't even know until 20 year, 29 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. We, we learned for the first time that not only did the Russians have medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, these were the strategic weapons with nuclear warheads attached, but they also had 102 additional battlefield nuclear weapons in addition to these missiles, 80 of which were cruise missiles with Hiroshima-sized warheads on them. And the Russian commanders in Cuba 
were told that they had permission to use these tactical weapons if a U.S. invasion were to take place and they couldn't contact Moscow. So this would have precipitated a a thermonuclear war. The entire planet would have descended into a nuclear winter with tremendous fallout, causing mutations, sickness for generations. This is in addition to sunlight being blocked from the earth for at least five years. Right. Temperatures would have fallen, plant life would have died, and our, our entire food chain would have been destroyed. I mean, it would have been a global catastrophe that, that the likes of which we, we can't even imagine. Christian Dicardieu, they call him the real John Constantine. Christian, you have another frightening episode for us. This happened to your father, I understand. Yeah, that's correct. As you know, I was uh, I was in Greece uh, this um, this past summer. While I was on vacation in Greece, I guess a file came in, and my father responded to it with our other technicians. And the file involved an older gentleman in his uh, late 60s, early 70s, and the individual had died of natural causes. I was reading the file, and it's my understanding that uh, it was a massive heart attack. And the deceased was decomposing for four or five days. And uh, this was in a home in a residential neighborhood. So, uh, as always, and uh, our team will respond and they will uh, perform uh, the inspection and, of course, get ready and uh, begin the decontamination procedure. And uh, at some point, uh, a break was called uh, for because, uh, of course, it was very hot this summer. And uh, normally we rotate our technicians every 30 to 45 minutes because of the suits that they wear. They don't breathe at all. And it's like a mobile sauna. So a uh, break was called and our technicians were sitting on, uh, on the back steps. They were having a water break. I guess they're having their cigarettes, their water break. And my father had gone to the truck to get some supplies. So while my father came back, he saw in the window of the back porch, which was above where our technicians were sitting. Now their backs were turned to the window and so they didn't see it. However, my father saw the deceased in the window. He saw the deceased in the window. Looking out the window, looking. looking Looking out the window as clear as day. Now, my father, if you know him, he's, uh, you know, he's when it comes to these types of uh, situations, he's as cool as a cucumber. And so I guess uh, he uh, puts a cigarette in his mouth, lights up his cigarette, walks up to, uh, sits down, puts his back to the window, and he says to the technicians, if you casually turn around through the corner of your eye, you will see the deceased in the window. Now, they didn't believe him, but sure enough, they turned around very slowly, and they looked at the window, and the deceased was right there looking at all of them. Right oh, in the man. mirror, crystal clear, and de- and I'm telling you, like a bunch of scaredy cats, they got up and ran right outside of the backyard, down the driveway, into the truck. So it was uh, a quite humorous and and quite funny. But uh, at the same time, it just goes to show you that when people pass, usually it's up to 90 days where they are in that environment. They, you know, an entity will always gravitate to. Uh, what they are most comfortable, what they know best, which is their home. Don't ever, ever have a mirror. Just another day at the office for uh, the folks at Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners and Paranormal Contractors. 
Christian, give us a, a 1-800 number. You can uh, contact us at one 866 724-0800 or we can be reached at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com If you have unwanted paranormal activity check out their YouTube channel Paranormal Contractors for things that go bump in the night In another reality Richard is a very strong and handsome man just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, what, what a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Peter Janney, the author of Mary's Mosaic, is here, and we're discussing the mysterious and unsolved murder of JFK's mistress, Washington, D.C. socialite, Mary Pinchot Meyer. All right, I'm guessing in the aftermath of, of Mary's murder... Those who were really responsible, and again, uh, they, they tried to pin it on uh, this Ray Crump Jr., African-American. Uh, but it, it, immediately following her murder, there is a, a mad scramble to locate a missing diary. That's right. And only two or three of Mary's friends knew that she was keeping a diary where she was not only keeping a diary of their affair together, but all of 1964, up until her death, Mary was doing her own research on the assassination. And, you know, being who she was, she had quite a bit of access to high-level people in Washington uh, who basically had told her this, in fact, was a conspiracy. I, I mean, Kenny O'Donnell, again, coming back to Kenny, who was JFK's chief assistant, he told House Speaker Tip O'Neill uh, years later that they were driving into an ambush in Dallas. The shots were coming from the grassy knoll, not from, you know, behind uh, in the Texas School Book Depository, although there were actually three teams. There was triangulated gunfire that eventually took JFK out. Right. Who has but the power the, to change the parade route? Certainly not uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Or the mafia. Right. Or the anti-Castro Cubans. Right. You see, I mean, this was a government conspiracy at the highest level, logistically orchestrated by the CIA, and the project manager was Alan Dulles. Make no mistake about it. Now, the uh, the diary, in addition to containing her own notes as she's trying to piece together the murder of her lover, JFK, was there also, as there was reported to be with, with Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, was there pillow talk, discussions, other things, national security type issues in that diary? Uh, I don't know because I never actually saw the diary. I, I, I do have some sense that yeah, there was a lot of pillow talk uh, about a number uh, of things because JFK really looked toward Mary as one of his chief allies. I mean, his turning away from the Cold War toward world peace, you know, this was a very lonely decision on his part because that meant he abandoned the entire national security apparatus. They couldn't control him anymore. He wasn't listening 
to what they were telling. And he rightly believed that what they were telling him was, again, always going to be some kind of setup, uh, like the Bay of Pigs incident in, in, in April of 1961. So he, he lost trust in his national security apparatus. And the other interesting variable here, Richard, is that Right after, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and subsequently afterward, he was having a secret relationship with Khrushchev. They were writing these letters to each other back and forth where they both came to an agreement that the Cold War was futile and that they needed to drop it and work toward world peace together. So in this American University speech, JFK announces for the first time uh, to the public that he's going to create a limited nuclear arms treaty with Russia. And literally, that treaty is ratified in the space of three months. It's ratified by the U.S. Senate in the following September in 63. This was uh, this kind of thing was unheard of. And, of course, had the CIA been a part of this treaty or the Pentagon part of this treaty, they would have never gotten it ratified. He abandoned the national security apparatus in order to get this done. But that was just one instance of his world peace initiative. The, uh, another one was that he was going behind the, the main lines of channel to try and make peace, to create a, a new rapprochement with Fidel Castro. He, he did not want to keep having this militaristic, bellicose, threatening kind of uh, war with Cuba, and with you know the CIA always trying to sabotage the country or kill Castro, you know, one thing or another. JFK was going underground to try and reach Castro to see what they could do to work together and come together. The third thing that he was doing, and, and there were more than three, but I'm just going to give you the highlights of something really important. In November of 63, early November, he goes to the U.N., and he announces that he wants to go to the moon with Russia, that this is going to be a joint space venture. And this would have been the ultimate symbol of the end of the Cold War. Had the U.S. and Russia gone to the moon together, uh, we would have be living on a very different planet. Peter, uh, this journal, was it ever located? Uh, parts of the real diary were located. Uh, I was never able to come in contact with it, but I, do, I did know two people who did. Uh, one of them was an author by the name of Leo Damore, who came on the scene before me. I met Mr. Damore. Uh, we became quite good friends in the space of about a year and a half. And then, you know, in the fall of 1965, Mr. Damore uh, commits suicide under very suspicious circumstances. So this is another, you know, one of those events, Richard, where, you know, people are dropping like flies uh, and the nature of their death is increasingly suspicious. Um, but I do know that Leo Damore had certain parts of Mary De Mary's diary, and he did tell me that there were a lot of uh, things written about what actually was going on in Dallas. Of course, there were things written about the nature of their affair. 
their hallucinogens uh, discussion and, and eventual experience together, things like that. Uh, the the Joint House Committee on Assassinations in the uh, late 70s, which actually, actually uh, in its report, uh, said that there was a conspiracy, uh, likely a conspiracy to kill uh, Kennedy. Right. Um, they saw documents which they weren't allowed to divulge. These are documents that are, are, are to be sealed until the year 2029. Uh, are, and I believe those same documents were, were, were seen by, um, members of a subcommittee on the church, uh, committee. Right. The, these documents, were they, were they referred to, or any information in those sealed documents, were they referred to in, uh, in Mary's diary? Well, I, I, cu- I couldn't say, uh, for sure. I, I, I do know that, you know, in terms of, what Senator Richard Schweiker of uh, Pennsylvania uh, finally came out and say, I mean, he, he said very pu- publicly, and I'll quote it. He said, we don't know what happened in Dallas, but we do know Oswald had intelligence connections. Everywhere you look with him, there are the fingerprints of intelligence. Now, he went on to have another interview with, a, with an author uh, that I know, David Talbot, uh, and he told David Talbot right out front, he said, you know, what I saw proved to me that, that you know, Oswald was, was the product of a fake defector program that was run by the CIA. In other words, this defection, this alleged defection that Oswald went to Russia, you know, gave up his U.S. citizenship, uh, th- this was... This was a system that the CIA used to get people into to Russia to see if they could come out with you know useful intelligence. Right. There uh, were probably would, a dozen Oswalds running around in places like Minsk and so forth around that same time. Absolutely, a- absolutely, uh, <clears throat> and and of course. Uh, being who I was, Richard, I, I was able to get access to certain former CIA personnel, and because they knew my father, they were willing to talk to me when they generally don't talk uh, to journalists. But one of them was a very well-known uh, CIA officer by the name of Victor Marchetti. He's written several books. He left the CIA. He became very disillusioned with, with uh, what they were doing. He worked for my father at one time. You know, he, he confirmed for me and uh, for another author uh, that, you know, Oswald was, was trained at this place in Nags Head, uh, North Carolina, something called the Illusionary Warfare Training Program. It was run by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And there are other people who have come forward and said that they saw Oswald there. Um, so, I, I mean... What your listeners really need to understand is that we have all been duped by our government, particularly in this case, the Warren Commission report. It really isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Was, it's a, who, who was, excuse me, Peter, who was feeding Mary this information about her lover's murder? Who, was it someone in the, the intelligence gathering uh, organizations? Was it uh, journalists? Who was telling Mary this, th- these things that she was jotting down in the diary that perhaps was responsible for her death? I only know of one person 
for sure, and that would be Kenny O'Donnell, ah, okay. JFK's chief assistant, because he was riding in the car directly behind JFK. And both JFK and Dave Powers, who were in that car, both of whom were seasoned World War II combat veterans. And when they came in to Daly Plaza and the gunfire started, these guys were smart enough to know where the gunfire was coming. And it was coming from in front and to the right. They could smell the gunpowder. They could see puffs of smoke. It was so clear uh, that this fish story that the Warren Commission was trying to get people to believe that all the shots came by from this lone nut assassin who was up on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. It, it was a complete fabrication. It was a complete cover-up. And that was precisely why Mary was assassinated. She read the Warren Commission report, the, the abridged paperback version, when it first came out in late September of 64. And it was at that point she realized, my God, this is an even bigger cover-up than the assassination itself. The only thing left for me to do is to go public with who I am and what my relationship to the president was and to tell people what is really going on here. Her phones were being tapped. The CIA was very aware of what she was doing. She was put under surveillance. They knew what her routines were. And it was a decision was made to make it look like a random act of violence out on the canal towpath on October 12th. And that's when they took her down. And uh, I, without giving everything away, um, uh, this uh, particularly, obviously, unbelievably painful moment for you when you start to connect the dots and some of them lead to your own father, Wister Janney. That's correct. I, I, part of the, part of uh, the reckoning that, that I eventually had to do in, in doing this research, coming to the point where I could put the pieces together, was realizing, oh, my God, not only was my own father part of the conspiracy to take this woman out, uh, I learned through a particular CIA document, which is Appendix 5 in the new edition, that he was instrumental in trying to destroy uh, the credibility of Jim Garrison's investigation of, of Clay Shaw. I mean, my father was clearly involved in the cover-up of trying to maintain uh, the CIA's innocence uh, in, in this event, when in fact they were the ones that were pulling all the strings together and creating the scenario for this to happen in Dallas. Uh, what was your 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 relationship like uh, with your father growing up? Well, uh, as I went to college uh, in the fall of 1966, uh, with the escalation of the Vietnam War starting to take place, that's when my father and and my relationship really started to be challenged. Um, I was not happy at all with what learning about what the CIA was doing in the world and specifically what my father was doing in the world as part of it. Uh, I didn't really know that much about what he really did. I, I didn't find out most of what I know until after he died. He died very early in 1979. He, he wasn't even 60 years old yet. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, approximately 2006, 2007, when I was deep into the research of putting this book together, that I was able to put 
two and two together and, and see who he really was and what he had really done. And uh, I can't imagine uh, how painful that must have been for you. But can you? Are you able to take me back to? Was there a particular document, a particular piece of evidence that that pointed towards your own father? Well, I, there's a there's a little vignette in the book where I talk about being awakened uh, one February morning uh, in 2007. It was very dark in my room. I. I I woke up, I was disoriented, I thought someone might be in my apartment. Um, I, I, my, my memory was that I'd been talking to someone, but I didn't know who I was talking to. But there was a, there was a presence, you know, in my immediate environment. And I just sort of sat up and sort of pulled myself together and, and got oriented. And then immediately this thought came through of, understanding why my father had called Ben Bradley right after the murder. My father knew about the murder. He knew what was going on. The CIA was, you know, controlling the whole operation. Uh, and it was clear to me that he had a role, an assignment, uh, in this assassination. And uh, that was it. Uh, in terms of the document that I came across, uh, I came across that document soon after. Uh, it is a me- I, I really don't know why the CIA le- let it out. Uh, it was, you know, it went through the histor- CIA historical review process, but it, it's so incriminating. I mean, the document itself is what any lawyer would call prima facie evidence of the CIA's involvement in the Kennedy assassination, and your readers will be able to see it in in the back of my book. It's appendix number five, and I discuss it at the end of the new chapter, the very last chapter, and uh, it's it's quite upsetting, and I don't think there have been uh, any assassination researchers who have really understood the significance of it. Uh, it, it, it's very damning. It's very incriminating. And, you know, this is an upper level, high echelon, secret CIA meeting going on with the highest level of leadership in the agency at that time. And they are very, very worried about what Jim Garrison's investigation is uncovering. And that's why they're having a series of these meetings about what Jim Garrison is doing. And, and of course, the, the, the immediate question, Richard, is, well, if you guys are so convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone nut assassin, why are you, why are you so upset about this? And, of course, it's all right there on the page. The, um, the CIA, uh, were they just a, uh, a collection of, of soulless mercenaries, or deep down did they truly believe that Kennedy was a national security risk, had to be, had to be removed by whatever means, and, and, and unfortunately Mary Pinchot Meyer was just one of those loose ends that had to be uh, cleaned up as well? Well, I, I think what your listeners need to understand is that any president who comes into office and decides that they want to 
have their own administration and be independent and take our country where they believe it should go, um, they're going to be shit out of luck. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not willing, if you're not going to play the game in terms of, look, you're a figurehead for four years. We're going to tell you what to do. We're going to tell you what you can do, what you can't do. If you're not willing to play by the rules, they're going to eliminate you. And that's precisely why they created a public execution, for lack of a better word. Right. Let's, to uh, let everybody Kennedy. know. To let everybody know. Let there be no mistake. We, uh, Peter, we are out of time. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. It's great to be with you, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of Conspiracy Unlimited and my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, I hope you'll consider becoming an official supporter. All you need to do is go to patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show and find out how to donate and help me and my team continue producing all of this great content. There are three support tiers to choose from. The Truth Seeker at $10 a month, The Whistleblower at $20 a month, and The Star Chamber at $50 a month. Donors gain access to exclusive monthly live chats with me, and you'll also be eligible for monthly draws for fabulous shows and podcast merch. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Your support is so important, and as always, greatly appreciated. Coming up next time, I'm dipping into my audio archives and dusting off a classic interview with the late, great JFK assassination researcher Jim Mars. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.